focus of our consideration this morning will be on uh, chapter 34, uh, verses 5 through through 9. Um, but I'm glad that we were able to, to read the sweep of um, chapters 32, 33, and 34, because my question for you this morning is, where in this passage are you? Are you in chapter 32? Are you in chapter 33? Or are you in chapter 34? Now, all of us, by nature, originally have, have an inclination to, to be in chapter 32. The people of Israel had, w- received great things from God. He brought them out of the land of Egypt um, and brought them out to a place of, of peace and of security and of safety. He provided for them daily uh, manna, and he provided for them consistently water to drink. And so they took all these things, but like spoiled children, once their leader was away, they forgot about God. They said, well, Moses isn't around, and so let's give our attention to the things that give us immediate satisfaction. Let's make something ourselves, a calf of gold, and let's party. Let's, th- let's do some things that bring us immediate pleasure right now. Let's focus on the things that we've made and material possessions that we've heaped up. Let's, and let's focus on gratifying our own sense of pleasure. And while we, we know what God has done, Let's forget about him and focus on ourselves. Well, if that's where you are in your heart, in a place of focusing on fulfilling your pleasures and forgetting about God, God tells us pretty clearly in in chapter 32 that the end of that road is death. The Bible says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof leads to destruction. Moses, when he comes down from the mountain, takes the idol that they have made, and an idol is that anything that you set up in your heart before God, anything you love more than God. Moses takes that idol, he grounds it to powder, and has the people uh, drink, the, drink water mixed with that powder to show that if, if you set up idols in your heart other than God and focus on yourself, it leads to bitterness. Then Moses calls uh, anyone who will come to go and kill all those who have deliberately disobeyed God and set up this idol. And that's to show us that if you focus on yourself and just gratifying your own pleasure, the end of that path is death. And then Moses prays to God and he asks God, if he will, to to blot Moses out of the book that he has written for the sake of these people. And this reminds us that if you focus on yourself and just getting getting your own pleasure and forget about God, then that leads to separation from God for all eternity. So, are you in chapter 22? A follow-up question would be, are you simply in chapter 33? Moses intercedes for the people, the people are brokenhearted over the effects of their actions. They realize that they deserve for God to forsake them. They realize that they what they've done leads to bitterness. It leads to death. And it leads to separation from God. 
And so, and so they, they grieve. And any of them who want to seek the Lord go to Moses' tent, Moses' private tent, which he sets up away from the camp uh, because the camp has become unclean, and, and they seek the face of God. Moses himself, as the mediator of the people, uh, goes to, to seek the Lord, and he prays that although the people have sinned grievously against God, that God will, God will forgive their sin, that instead of tasting bitterness, they'll instead taste the sweetness of his presence. And instead of tasting separation from him, they'll instead experience um, the, the glory of his presence as they move on to the, to, to the promised land. So there is repentance here as Moses leads the people in repentance. The people had been saying, thanks God for your blessings. We're free and we're out of Egypt. Now we're just going to party and forget about you. And too often, that's how we're inclined to be, even in our Christian life. And, but in chapter 33, there's repentance, and they realize we don't want God's blessings without God himself. We need the presence of God. And perhaps you're in that place. You realize, I've tried your blessings, God, but, but trying the things that you've made, the things that you've given me, without your presence, leaves me dry empty, bitter, dead, and separate from you. So I need you along with your blessings. Otherwise, your blessings have no savor. But what we learn from the end of chapter 33, moving into 34, is that God doesn't want us even to remain there in chapter 33. And we're, we're told that, we're shown this through Moses. Moses begs God that his presence would go with them and that he would give them rest. He says, if, if you won't go up with us, we don't even want to go into the promised land. And so God relents and he says, I will go with you. But Moses does not stop there. He's not satisfied with merely having God's presence along with his blessings. That's not enough to allow Moses to, to rest on his laurels and be complacent. Moses prays, show me your glory. And so my question for you this morning is, is that your prayer? Is your prayer to God, show me your glory? Through Moses, God is teaching us that, that it is his will for us to pray like that. We don't know how to, what, what to pray for as we ought. God teaches us through his word, and here he is teaching us to pray, show me your glory. If that's your prayer, then God welcomes you to a meeting with him. This is what he welcomes Moses into, and this is what he welcomes you to this morning. He welcomes you to meet him and to encounter him. And when you have an encounter with the living God, it, it must be done on his terms, and the meeting is going to go according to his agenda. So I want to look for a moment at the terms of the meeting, and then in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 9, I want to take a, take a glimpse at this meeting itself between Moses and God, the meeting that you are invited to partake in. When God sets the terms of this meeting, as Moses asks him, show me your glory, he says first that if you're going to meet with the living God, this will be a personal meeting. 
It will be a personal meeting. He says, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. God will himself be present with Moses, and and Moses will hear what God has to say. This is important to emphasize because we can become accustomed to thinking that it's that it's satisfactory to hear from God without being thirsty for the presence of God. And God tells us otherwise here. He says, I will show you my glory by being present. I will, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And in that context, as I myself am there, I will declare the name of the Lord. I will express my revelation to you. So the terms of this meaning is that God must be present and then we must recognize the privilege of this meeting. God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. Have you allowed it to hit you that God's grace is not something you are entitled to? God's compassion is not something that you deserve. When you grow up in the church and you hear a lot about grace and a lot about compassion, it's the nature of our sinful hearts that our hearts develop calluses where no calluses should be. And God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. The grace is something that's decided within God and it is not earned or deserved um, or secured by, by us. And when we realize that, we realize that a meeting with the living God is the greatest privilege that anyone on earth could ever hope for. God is loving and kind to his enemies, and so he sprinkles his blessings on on those who love him and on those who don't. But we are called to not not allow ourselves to be distracted from God by his blessings. That's been the problem with mankind ever since the fall. We, we covet the things that God has made instead of desiring his presence. So, we need to realize that a meeting with God means that he will be there. And we need to recognize that a meeting with God is the, is the greatest privilege that any human being could hope for. And then third, we see at the end of chapter 33, that a meeting with God requires God's own protection. God tells Moses that he will, he will hide him in the cleft of the rock, in the crack of the rock, in the crevice of the rock, and he will cover him with his hands while, his, while he passes by. And then he will take away his hands and Moses will see his back. Moses needed to be secure and protected on all sides in this crevice and covered by the hand of God in order for Moses to encounter God. God's radiance, his glory, his his holiness is so overpowering that none of us would survive a direct, full-on, unprotected encounter with him. We would be incinerated. We would be done away with. It wouldn't be good for us. So God requires us, as we meet with him, to be within his own protection. So let's now move on to the meeting itself. God summons Moses up to Mount Sinai once again. 
He descended after he received the Ten Commandments. He saw the people ignoring God and living for pleasure. He broke the tablets. And now God invites Moses um, up to him again. And here we have, in verses 5 through 9, the meeting with God. And as Moses meets with God, we find first God's revelation of himself, verses 5 through 7, and then Moses' response to God, verses 8 and 9. So first we see God's revelation of himself, and, and, and we see right away, just as God had um, anticipated and, um, and prepared Moses for at the end of chapter 33, we find that this meeting with God is intensely personal. God himself, while he's everywhere, he draws near to specific people at specific places at specific times. And here, the fact that God is drawing near is emphasized um, very powerfully in the use of three different verbs. We're told that Yahweh descended in the cloud. So God came down with the visible manifestation that he had taught the people of Israel to realize represents his presence. So he descended in this visible representation of his presence. He descended to come near to where Moses was at the pre-appointed meeting place. Then he stood with him there. He remains there in in an intentional way face-to-face with Moses. And then we're told in verse 6 that Yahweh passed before him. So God himself descended, stood, and passed before Moses. Now this experience was utterly unique in the Old Testament. We're told at the end of Exodus that even the prophets generally did not have encounters with God like this. Uh, We're told at the end of Exodus that God had a relationship with Moses where he would speak with him face to face as a man speaks with his friend. So here God comes down to meet with Moses very personally, very intimately. And as he and Moses meet, God declares his name to, to Moses. So he reveals himself verbally to Moses. As we are made in God's image, um, we are designed in such a way that as as we speak to one another, as we converse with one another, our our relationships can grow deeper and deeper and deeper. God, God designed us with that capacity because that's part of being made in His image. And as God reveals Himself to us by His Word, He's given us the capacity to receive that revelation, and dive deeper into a a personal knowledge of who God is and an intimate familiarity with with who He is. So, So God says, Yahweh, Yahweh God. Yahweh means I am that which I am. Yahweh God means there is no other living God. God is the one who is ever present um, listening to his people and ready to help his people. And as we see God's description of his character in the verses that follow, verses 6 and 7, we might summarize this description uh, 
as this, Yahweh is, the, is love who invites us in. Yahweh is love who invites us in. He says, I am Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate is the first word. It's translated elsewhere, merciful. It means that, that God is deeply interested in us and in our sufferings. That's why he came near to the people of Israel in their sufferings in the land of Egypt and did something about it. He tunes in to our heartbreak and our cries, uh, our cry, cry, our brokenhearted cries. And we're told that he's gracious. God says, I am, I am gracious. So when God comes down to express his love to us, he's not like us. He doesn't look for something in the other person that would, that would draw forth his love. But despite our complete lack of deserving his love, he within himself finds, finds the love to, to come down and express love to people who are in desperate need of love, but have completely forfeited um, any right to love. So he is compassionate, tuned into our needs, and he is gracious, willing to love the entirely undeserving, the people of Israel here. And we're told that he's slow to anger. Paul, did, Paul says that this slowness to anger is the first quality of real love. 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, God is slow to anger. He, he is willing to put up with, put up with, and put up with sin, failure, shortcomings, and slowness to learn because He is the love that bears all things and endures all things. And, and because of Himself and His own love, there, he, he, he brings about a faith and a, and a hope that he, that he can take you from where you're at and bring you, um, and bring you to where he wants you to go. So, so he is compassionate, he is gracious, he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. God's love is a love that keeps flowing and doesn't run out. God's love is a love that you dive into it and you never reach the bottom. And he is abounding in truth. He, he is utterly stable. Where, wherever you are, in, in whatever situation you find yourself, what, whatever waves are tossing you around, whatever winds are, are blowing you to and fro, whatever darkness you find yourself in, you listen to the voice of God, you, you find his hand reaching out to you, and his truth, the truth of who he is, stabilizes you regardless of your circumstance or situation. And, and then we're told that he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. He's the one who, who releases people from guilt and iniquity. He's the one who pardons the rebels, the transgressors. And he's the one who comes and frees those who are captive in sin, who are bound up in sin. But why this, why this shift? Why this change in the middle of verse 7? God forgives iniquity and transgression of, and sin, yet by no means clears the guilty. Why are we told in back-to-back phrases that God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, no matter what you've done in whatever category your sin could be placed, God, for, God will forgive you, and yet He will not clear the guilty. 
and he will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, to the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. While in verse 7 we're told that he keeps loving kindness for thousands. That means thousands of people, whoever you are, you're welcome to come to God because he is the love that invites you in. And, and yet, in the, in the same description, we're told that he will, he will not forgive the guilty and he will repay the, the sins of the fathers into the bosoms of the children to the third and the fourth generation. Whoever you are, you can find mercy with God and the mercy that he shows you, he will show to your children to the thousandth generation. And yet he is the God who repays the sins of the fathers to the children to the third and fourth generation. Why this, why this dichotomy, why this contrast, why this, what might appear to be a contradiction in the character of God? God is the, is the love who invites you in. But if you don't receive his invitation, if you don't heed his call, to come into him and echo the, the prayer of Moses, show me your glory, I need your presence, I don't want your blessings without you, show me your glory, show me your glory, show me your glory. If you don't heed his call to come into him and to meet with him, to encounter him and to go ever deeper into who he is, then you'll find that you, you, will, you will receive exactly what you have asked for. If you do not heed God's invitation, you are telling God, no thank you, I prefer to enjoy your blessings without you for, for the time being, and I'm willing for you to hold me guilty, and I'm willing for you to, to, to reckon my sin to me, and to cause my children and my grandchildren and my great children to suffer the consequences of my sin. That's what it is to be outside of covenant with God. So if you will heed God's call, welcoming you in, summoning you to encounter him himself, then you'll dive into the riches of his mercy and never reach the bottom. You'll drink from his goodness and it will never run dry. But if you, if you will not receive this invitation with open ears, open eyes, and open heart, then all that's left for you is guilt that sticks to you, that will be bitter, that will result in death, that, that will result in separation from God forever, and will have consequences to people around you, specifically your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. These are the consequences of not heeding the invitation into God's love. And what's the appropriate response? The appropriate response we see from Moses is immediate and total surrender to God. We're told that Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Um, he made haste and bowed his head toward the earth. And actually the, the word worship means, again, to bow yourself down. Moses prostrated himself before God immediately and completely. This is the appropriate response to God. We, we, I don't know that we really get this in Western culture. Um, we're, we're not always sure what to do with our bodies. If, if the um, people raise their hands in worship, we, sometimes we, we, 
We'll wonder what we're supposed to do or if people would kneel down in worship. We'll, we'll fumble around. We may not, may not be as accustomed to, to that. Prostrating ourselves before the Lord may seem a little foreign. But what, what's significant is, is not only the physical action of prostrating himself before the Lord, which is the proper response to God's revelation of who he is. That's the response of the elders in the book of Revelation. They're perfect. They're pure. They're the spirits of just men made perfect. And yet when they behold the Lamb of God upon the throne, they cast their their crowns before the throne. God, take everything I have. And then they fall on their faces before the throne. God, take everything I am. And Moses, as the mediator of God's people, leads them and and in a sense really leads us in saying this is how you respond when God shows you as much of himself as you can as you can handle you you surrender immediately when you when you encounter him you utterly abandon yourself to him you make haste and you bow down are you going to this morning make haste and bow down And I'm not talking about physically so much laying and prostrating yourself before the Lord, though that is appropriate and there may be a time for that. But in your heart, are you willing right now as we encounter God in his word to make haste and prostrate yourself before him, saying to him what, what that action indicates, God, whatever I am, it's yours immediately. The moment you realize that that this is God and he invites you into his love, you say, God, I bow myself before you. I lay myself before you. Take me now. And then we recognize that this is not just an immediate surrender. It's a total surrender. So Moses is saying, God, every part of me, all of who I am, is utterly abandoned to you. And we might echo, God, if, if there's anything I'm holding behind my back, if, any, if there's anything I'm withholding for you from you, God, I lay myself, all I am, all I, all I have, utterly before you in total surrender. This is worship. And frankly, God isn't interested what we're, what we're, in what we're saying with our mouths in formal worship unless this is the attitude of our hearts. Unless you've fallen before God in your heart in utter, total surrender, then God simply is not interested in what you have to say. And in fact, he says it's, it's, it's despicable to him. Will you as, you, as you encounter God here in this passage, Bow utterly before him and surrender yourself to him. Moses continues in his response by saying, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us. And in the three requests that Moses makes, we find that Moses' requests are simply echoing back to God, God's greatest desires for his people. Moses asked that God will go with them. Well, this is precisely what God has called his people out of Egypt for. 
He said to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Let them go from, from slavery to you because they're my servants. I want to have this intimate fellowship, this relationship with them. God wanted them to be with him. And when God calls you out of your bondage to sin, he does it because he wants to be with you. So Moses echoes back to God, God's own greatest desire for him, for his presence to be with him, for his presence to be with the people. And, and, and Moses, while he recognizes that this is the greatest privilege imaginable, he says, Lord, if I've found grace in your sight, please, my Lord, he speaks with utter reverence, go among us. Although we are a stiff-necked people, though we don't deserve your presence, please be with us. Then Moses goes on to echo God's great desire for his people and pardon our iniquity and our sin. Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai and on Mount Sinai, God has delineated for the people a system of sacrifices because God is deeply interested in pardoning their iniquity and their sin. That's why God called them out of Egypt so that he could take them as his own people, so that they could relate to him on a continuous basis through his continuous pardon of their, of their sin through the sacrificial system. So Moses begs God for what God is deeply interested in giving to the, 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 giving to the people, this pardon for iniquity and our sins. So while Moses recognizes again that he doesn't deserve this pardon for iniquity and sin, he realizes that God is compassionate and gracious. And on that basis, he asks that God will pardon their iniquity and sin. And then finally, he asks, Moses asks God, take us as your inheritance. Now this is interesting um, because in, in chapter 33, um, God had said initially to the people, go up into your inheritance because I'm not going to go with you. If I went with you, I'd just destroy you. So that doesn't make any sense. So you just go up Take your inheritance. I'll give it to you. If, you. if you're so interested in my blessings, take my blessings then. Take the blessings. I, I love you like I, lo- like I love anybody else. I'll sprinkle my blessings on you. But I won't, I'm not going to go with you because I'll destroy you. Take my blessings if you don't want me. Go up and take your inheritance then. But then as the people humble themselves before God, led by Moses as, the, as their mediator, God says, okay, I will go with you up into your inheritance. But Moses is not willing to rest, he certainly won't settle for going up and taking the inheritance without God's presence. That's, that's unacceptable. That's unthinkable for Moses, for whom the presence of God is the greatest delight. But Moses is not even satisfied with God coming with them into their inheritance. Moses, Moses is pleased with that, but Moses wants more than that because he's saying, Lord, show me your glory. And this petition, show me your glory, I think it culminates in this, in this final petition in response to God showing him his glory. He says, take us as your inheritance. And in other words, it's not enough to go up into the inheritance without you. It's not, and it's not enough simply to go into, into our inheritance with you. Lord, take us 
as your inheritance. In other words, as I lay myself before you, utterly prostrate on the ground, I surrender myself to you. I pray that you would take every part of me, have your way with me, do whatever you want with me, but whatever you do, Lord, take me as yours. I abandon my will, take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. I abandon myself to you. I consecrate myself to you. Take me as as yours. You're talking about us conquering the land. God, I want you to conquer me. Utterly subjugate me to yourself so that there's no part of me that is that is outside of your control and your rule because your rule is perfect freedom. Take me as your possession. Take me as your inheritance. Utterly subdue me and conquer me for yourself. Then I'll be free and I'll, and I'll have your presence. And that's what it is to live in the light of your glory. And so in this encounter with God, we see God, God revealing himself to Moses as the love that invites us in. And the only way that this love doesn't reach you is if you refuse the invitation. And the proper response to that love is to fall down before God in immediate and utter surrender and beg him for those things that are dearest to his own heart for his presence, for his pardon, and for ourselves to be his own possession. Now, I believe that as we witness this encounter with God by Moses, the mediator of the Old Covenant, what we see is an anticipation of, of the encounter with God that Jesus invites us into. Jesus is the mediator of the New Covenant. And Jesus has come. He's descended from heaven. He's passed before us in the Gospels. And he's descended for us visibly, not in a cloud, but in a body. And he has come to us and, and, and invited us into the love that he is. And he said that if we're to encounter him as he is, then there are certain terms he is the sovereign God, so he sets the terms for the encounter. He says that if we're, in t if we're to encounter the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, then, then we, we can't settle for anything less than his presence. We don't want to simply hear about him with the hearing of the ear. We want our eyes to see him. We, we don't want to be content simply with, with hearing about him, but we want, to, we want to know him, Jesus Christ himself. And, and if we're going to encounter him, we need to, we, we, we need to realize that this is the greatest privilege in heaven or on earth. This is the greatest thing to encounter Jesus Christ. His blessings don't hold a candle to him. Um, the greatest thing is, is him. He's the one who is gracious to whom he will be gracious. And the only way to really encounter Jesus is if Jesus himself is your protection. The safest place in a fire is where the fire is already burned. Jesus is the cleft in the rock. Jesus is the fortress. Jesus is the place uh, where we can, if we're tucked into Jesus, 
then we're safe from the incinerating holiness of God. So in, in Jesus, we can encounter Jesus as the representation of, of the Father. And as we do that, we find that Jesus is Yahweh. He, he is, I am who I, who I am. He is the one true and living God. He is compassionate. He, he's so interested in our pain that he fully participated in it. In fact, we're told that he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. He's so full of, of grace that he looks upon us at the cross and, and he says that he is the one who justifies the ungodly. He makes the, he makes the ungodly righteous. Uh, there is in him grace for the chief of sinners. His long-suffering, his slowness to anger is, is so great that he would rather suffer all the effects, all of the, the consuming, um, destructive effects of the anger of God himself in his own person being or suffering the full wrath and curse of God on the cross rather than us suffer the wrath of God. That is slowness to anger. Um, he's abounding in love and truth. You, you come to him and he is the well of love that never uh, runs dry. He is the place to stand. He is the sh- his word um, provides stability and he is a shelter in the time of storm. He's the one that keeps uh, mercy for thousands. Whosoever will may come. If you've never heard the voice of Jesus before, uh, really calling to you and and saying, come to me and I will give you rest. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. If you're guilty, come to me and I will give you my righteousness. Then, uh, then, then come. And he promises mercy for you and, and, and for your children to the thousandth generation because his mercy never runs dry. His loving kindness never runs dry. Whatever sin you've committed, whatever guilt you've incurred, whatever rebellion against his, his kingly authority you've been guilty of, um, whatever sin has overtaken you and kept you in bondage, Jesus says there's, there's free release, there's free forgiveness in me. And yet, if you, if you won't hear his call, if you turn aside from his call, Outside of Jesus, there is no hope. Outside of, of Jesus, there's only drinking the bitter water of idolatry. Outside of Jesus, there's only the death that idolatry brings. Uh, outside of Jesus, there is only separation from God forever and ever and ever. So if you see Jesus as Moses saw Yahweh, if you see him personally, if you hear his voice calling out to you personally, inviting you into the love that is himself, then then how do you respond? Will you immediately, right now, bow down? Will you bow yourself before Jesus and say, Jesus, take all of me. I want to belong to you now and forever. Will you say, Jesus, I want you to be with me every step of the way the remainder of my life? Will you say, Jesus, all of my sin, I'm begging for you to, to forgive it. Because apart from you, all there is is bitterness, death, and separation from God. Jesus, would you please forgive me? And Jesus, would you take all of me? Would you conquer me completely? 
every part of me, subdue me to yourself. I want to be your inheritance. Even even now, before I get to my inheritance where I'll be with you forever, take me as your treasured possession. Take me as as your or as your land to conquer and let and leave no part of me unconquered. Let leave none of my possessions un, unclaimed. Take me as your inheritance. So have you heard what Jesus is saying to you this morning? Have you heard what Jesus is saying to you this morning? Jesus is saying that if you're distracted from him by some golden calf in your life, let him distract you away from the distraction. If you are okay with simply having his presence until until you get to glory and not wanting to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into a knowledge of him, saying, show me your glory, show me your glory, show me your glory, the voice of, G- of Jesus is saying, no, come, there's more to know. There's more to know. There's more to know. As C.S. Lewis would say, higher up and further in. Yeah. Higher up and further in. Do you hear Jesus calling you? Let, it, let Jesus distract you away from the distractions of your idols. And let Jesus distract you away from the complacency that, that we're all tempted to settle into in our Christian life. Okay, I have my blessings. I know God is present with me. Now I can relax. No. It's always show me your glory. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. <clears throat> because since God is infinite, and since we, 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 we know and we find the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, there is always more. There are always new heights to attain. And, and, it, and, and if you catch a glimpse, perhaps you, you want to read it later on in the week, in the rest of chapter 34, of Exodus, we find that this wasn't Moses' final meeting with God. He continued to encounter him again and again and again. And kids, do you realize that the relationship that Moses had with God, that God talked to him as he spoke with his friend, God wants you to have that kind of relationship with him. Jesus' enemies looked at him and they said, ah, look at that guy, he's a friend of sinners. But what they called him to mock him That's our greatest badge of honor. And that's the highest title that Jesus could have, is that he is a friend of sinners. Jesus wants to be your friend. He wants to be your closest friend. He wants you to open up your Bible in the morning or in the evening or any time of day and expect to meet Jesus, not just to read words because you want to check it off a list or because you're supposed to, but he wants to meet with you when you open up the Bible. Because he's the friend of sinners and he wants to be your friend as he was friends with Moses. You know what the, you know what the one thing you really need in life is? Mary found out what it was. It's not, to, it's not to be busy doing all sorts of things for the Lord. It's certainly not to just go out and enjoy all the nice things God has made. Though that's wonderful. The world is God's big sandbox. He made it for us to enjoy. But the one thing that's really necessary is just sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to him. Moses found, Moses discovered the one thing we really need is to spend time with Jesus as our friend. That's what we're doing now. We're encountering the living God 
And this is the one thing that we need. To spend time with Jesus as our friend. There's no greater friend. He's known us since before we were born. And, and he, he's inviting us into his love forever and ever and ever. Nobody could ever love you like Jesus. He was willing to die on the cross for you. He's willing to forgive all of your sins. He wants to be with you. But do you want to be with him? Do you want to ask him to forgive you? Do you want to ask him to be with you? Do you want, do you want to ask him, Jesus, take every part of me? If that's the case, then keep meeting with him. Open up your Bible and meet with him. Come to worship, not just to do it, but to meet with Jesus. And as you do, guess what will happen? You know what happened to Moses? Moses walked down from that mountain, and he didn't even know it, but his face was shining. His face was glowing. And the people wanted him to put a veil over his face. You know what Paul says, though? When, when we meet with God in his word or in a prayer meeting or in worship, we can expect that we're going to come away and our faces will be shining. And, and each time we come away, there will be, be more glory on our faces because we're Jesus' friends and we've met with him and he's the only thing that we really need. But once you've met with him, then you can face anything. Then you can face the giants in the land. Then you can face trouble, um, even in God, among God's people. Once you have Jesus, you have everything you need. And so meet with Him. Next time you go to church, go to meet with Jesus. Next time you open your Bible, open it to meet with Jesus. Next time you go to a prayer meeting, go to meet with Jesus. Next time we have family worship, come to meet with Jesus, because this is the one thing we need. And when we meet with Jesus, we'll come away with our faces shining. Because when you meet with Jesus, you can never stay the same.